0: building material builders didn't want to use them they were imperfect but there's a story of a presbyterian church in the, in new york state that was that intentionally built their church out of clinker bricks the congregation wanted to send a message so they built their church out of these imperfect rejected bricks just like the people who make up the church of god as sinners everybody in the church are clinker bricks no exceptions every, every single one of them We have our imperfections. Uh, We fall woefully short of the perfection that God requires. But through Christ, we receive a new life and become useful living stones with him as the foundation from which he builds his church. And as we'll learn tonight, we're not useful because we're all of that in a bag of chips because we're not all that great. It's Christ who is great. He gives our misshapen, broken lives new life. He is the chief cornerstone upon which the foundation of all the clinker bricks of the church are laid. So tonight we'll see how God takes us out of that dead scrap pile and gives us new life in Christ that glorifies him and from which he builds a beautiful, shining church for his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now, Father, in our broken, imperfect, fallen, ways, Lord. We just thank you, God, for your salvation and for your forgiveness of our sins, dear Lord. Father, just open our hearts and open our minds, Lord, to how great that salvation is. What a wonderful gift it is that you have given us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be useful bricks in the foundation of your church, Father, to do the works that you call us to do, dear Lord. Father, we just love you and thank you, and we just lift this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, we're going to look at a couple of things about our new life in Christ from from a couple of perspectives. We're going to first look at the process of becoming a new life in Christ, from verses 1 through 9. Then we'll look at the purpose of becoming a new life in Christ, verse 10. Then we'll examine the price of acquiring a new life in Christ, verses 11 through 18. And finally, we'll look at the privilege of having a new life in Christ in verses 19 through 22. So I'm a project manager in my normal job, so processes are really important to me. So when I was looking at this study, I was looking at the process. How do I become a new life in Christ? Because I wanted to know what the steps were. But before we kind of go there, we, we need to go back a little bit, as I mentioned, back to chapter one, around verse 19, so that when we start this chapter, we have a little bit more context for where this begins. And Karen spoke about this last week, and it's here that we learn of the exceeding greatness of God the Father's power toward us who believe the same mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Last week, Karen shared from Romans 8:11 that the power that raised Jesus from the dead also gives life to our mortal body, bodies through his spirit that lives in us. So what's important for us to note as we go into chapter 2 is that this incredible power of the Father to raise Christ from the dead and place him in a seat of authority at his right hand is the exact same power that raises us from spiritual death to a new life in Christ. And that same power also enables us to carry through that new life in Christ once it's been given. So when we start chapter 2 with, and he made And you he made alive. We don't want to just skip quickly over those first couple of words because that sets the stage for everything else that follows. So I'll read. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, and you'll find out why I love those two words, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. So in the process of becoming a new life in Christ, it requires us to be made alive from the death of trespasses and sins that we live in. And we have to receive the gift of salvation and be raised up and seated together with Christ. And I just really love that, that Paul kind of starts with the good news here. He starts off with the good news in that process. He says, and you he made alive. And at that point in time, you know, I was reading, and I was just, okay, I'm done. We can close the book. I'm alive. That's all I need to know. I'm good. God has made me alive. He has regenerated me. That would be the beginning and the end of a beautiful story. But Paul goes on to say much, much more than that. He says that after God used his great and awesome power to raise his son from death, he then turns around and uses that same power to resurrect us from spiritual death. When I was studying um, this passage, it it was interesting because I began to wonder a little bit why it took so much power to give me a new life in Christ. I thought, you know, I wasn't that bad before I came to the Lord, you know. I wasn't perfect. Stop, Lorraine. But I wasn't so bad that it would take the power from the God of the universe to clean me up and make me presentable. I showered every day. I used my deodorant. I even spritzed a little of that after shower, you know, smell good stuff, you know. I honestly didn't think I was all that bad. But isn't that what we all think? or thought at that time, or that the world even thinks today. Then I really got a better picture of what it really meant to be dead in trespasses and sins, and it gave me a much better perspective. This is the perspective that we need to keep in mind when we share the gospel with the world. We need to find a way for them to understand how their sin looks in the eyes of God. Uh, I guess the controversy that went on last uh, year about um, a bakery that would not do a wedding cake for a same sex couple and that got a lot of press and everything and and I guess I just learned recently that what they wanted on the cake was God hates gays and that's why the the baker, the Christian bakery wouldn't do it and I thought wow, all we have to put on the cake is God hates sin. Because that's really what it's all about. That's really what he's talking about. That's really the trespasses and the sins. That's the ugliness that he sees in us and that he can't look upon. So when we talk about salvation, we need to talk about what we're being saved from. You can't just tell people you need to be saved. What are we saving them from? It's God's wrath. Otherwise, what's the point? We're all the same. Not in need of a savior, just in need of feeling good. In my whole life before I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the word says I was dead. And the Greek word for dead here is called, is necros, And it's from a word that means corpse. And we get several words that we use in, in our language from this such as necrology, that was a new one for me. Necrology is an obituary, which of course is a listing of recently dead people. Uh, necromancy which is the practice of talking to the spirits of dead people and those are usually done through occult practices and seances and we know from the witch of uh, Endor that that's some of the things that she engaged in and then also the word necropsy which is an autopsy performed on a dead animal but even with all these iterations of that word the operative word is dead corpse unliving I was a living corpse, you were a living corpse. We were physically alive, but spiritually dead. We were dead women walking. And if you guys have ever heard the term dead man walking, it's a term that they use about um, men under execution on death row, and they see them on the way to, you know, whatever the form of execution, and they said, dead man walking because you're literally dead for all intents and purposes. We may have looked good on the outside, as we often do, but we were spiritually dead on the inside. And dead people stink, don't they? Remember what Martha said about her own brother, Lazarus, when Jesus came to uh, call, you know, resurrect him? You know, they were very upset. He was dead in the tomb for four days. And what does she say? Lord, he stinketh. That's the old King James Version. I love that. So God made us alive and initiated the process of becoming a new life in Christ. He saved us, he regenerated us, and spiritually resurrected us with his divine power. He gave life to the dead. Charles Spurgeon describes the spiritually dead as being, we were full of vigor towards everything which was contrary to the law or the holiness of God. We walked according to the course of this world, but as for anything spiritual, we were not only somewhat incapable and somewhat weakened, but we were actually and absolutely dead. And if we think we weren't as bad or as dead as the drug dealer on the corner or the thief who steals your your purse, we have to understand that dead is dead to God, just like sin is sin to God, regardless of the degree of our sin. Before we came to Jesus, we were dead, just in different stages of decomposition. That's all regardless of how morally pleasant we may have been on the outside our spiritual insides stinketh the high heaven to the lord trespasses and sins are the worms of decay that consume our spirit and leave rotten corpses dead to the things of god that's why we have to keep our accounts short with the lord ladies We need to constantly be going before him, asking for forgiveness of our sins. It doesn't mean that he he doesn't know what they are. It doesn't mean that he's not aware of who we are. But he wants us to come to him and keep our accounts short by confessing our sins, and he will be faithful and just to forgive us. And since in our dead state there is nothing on this earth that can remove the stench and condemnation of sin from our souls, we can't febreze it away and we can't spray a little Lysol on it and let the germs and odors kind of go away, God has to intervene and work his mighty power to give us new life, to save us from spiritual death. Verses 2 and 3 remind us exactly how far gone we were in our decomposition when God made us alive. He says, we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. The prince of the power of the air is Satan, and here it's clear that he has free access to the old dead man, First John 5:19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Everyone who is not born again and given a new life in Christ is under the power and influence of Satan. The reality, ladies, is that either we serve God or we serve the devil. There is no neutral position. Romans 8, 5 says that we live to the flesh or we live to the spirit. John 8:32 says, we in our natural dead state are slaves to sin. This was the former lifestyle we lived and our way of life was centered on the desires of our flesh fueled by the influence of Satan. Our sin nature was our natural bent in practice. It's what we did because it was who we were. We were dead women walking under a sentence of death headed for execution according to God's divine wrath and perfect judgment but verses four through six tell us the means and the motivation behind God's salvation for us and it begins with my two favorite words in the Bible but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us that even when we were dead in trespasses God made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I imagine when I think about what he's done in making us alive, again, I imagine this beautiful, sleek, white limousine. And in it is this very, very rich and affluent man. He is wearing these lightning bright clothes and these beautiful white gloves. And he pulls up into a graveyard and he sees an open grave there with a corpse lying in And this rich, beautifully, impeccably clothed man reaches down into this grave and he pulls this corpse up and he embraces this corpse and he holds it close to him. He doesn't get soiled or dirty from that corpse. In fact, that corpse becomes clean and bright and whole and real and alive all over again. And then he takes this new alive thing that he's Pulled out of the grave and made alive again, and he puts it in the limo in the back seat with his son, seated right there on the back seat, and he tells this new, alive creature, he says, "You are now one of mine, too. You now have access to the same riches, the same inheritance as my son. But he doesn't stop there. The man keeps going back because of his kind-heartedness, back again." and again and again to this graveyard until eventually he puts the graveyard out of business. That's what the Lord does. He puts death out of business. He makes us adopted into the beloved. He gives us the riches of his abundant love, grace, and mercy. This is the way a holy God reaches down to make us alive and save us from the penalty of sin. We receive his loving kindness toward us, his redemption and his deliverance. Colossians two thirteen and 14 say, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. His rich mercy intercedes on our behalf and removes the death sentence hanging over our heads. Rich, when it refers to his mercy, means abounding. It's a reminder that we cannot outgive God. Mercy is a characteristic of God that causes him to give us less than what we deserve, because we deserve death. But in his case, he sees us beyond that death. He shows his mercy toward us so that we can escape the penalty of death. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We do nothing to prompt God's salvation on our behalf, ladies, and we do nothing in our own ability to save ourselves. It's all about his love, his mercy, His grace, his power, his riches, his son. It's all about him. Salvation is his gift to us. We are just the recipients. Romans 5, 8 says, but God, again, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 also reminds us, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In our carnal state, we have absolutely nothing to offer God. Our sin makes us spiritually dead with no worth or works to offer the Lord. We have to be made alive and transformed into a new life in Christ in order to be useful. So the process of becoming a new life in Christ begins with God. It begins with him making us alive and regenerating us into a new life. And then in verses seven through nine, the process continues through God's immeasurable mercy, love, and grace. It's still amazing to me that one of the reasons God saves me is because he wants to bless me. It's humbling because I know my heart. I know what my heart is like. I know that it's not always inclined to the things of God and it's not in, always inclined toward God. And this is my current state saved resurrected from the dead so i don't even want to think about what i had been like even before then but yet god still loved me he had bigger and better plans for my life than i had for myself and in spite of the desperate wickedness of my heart that he sees with divine clarity ladies he doesn't miss anything he still wants to bless me once again, I just look at the adjectives that are used in these passages. Rich in mercy, great love, exceeding riches. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. God is amazing. He doesn't just give us a mediocre measure of blessings. There is no restraint or limitation on his ability or desire to bless us with the overabundant, overflowing spiritual wealth of his grace and kindness. Titus 3, 4 through 7 also says it this way. It says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appear, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In and through Jesus Christ, we are heirs of God's indescribable, abundant love and grace. Grace means in this passage, undeserved, unmerited favor, freely given and bestowed on humanity by God. It's an important definition that we need to hold on to and cling to, not just for this passage, but for the whole book of Ephesians. These two verses, verses 8 and 9, are the bullseye of the chapter. They say, For grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. These verses make it crystal clear that salvation Of who salvation comes from and who it doesn't. It is important in understanding the process of receiving a new life in Christ that we understand where that gift comes from. We are saved by grace, unmerited, undeserved favor from God toward us. We do nothing to earn it, it's a gift. You know, if you have to work for a gift, it's no longer a gift you ever think about you know when you go to work you don't go to give a gift and just walk out with nothing at the end of 2 weeks you want your paycheck you want to get paid because a gift is something that's given freely but when you have to work for something you want something in return you have an expectation this is why we have to be reborn and made alive in Christ into a new life in Christ our old ways get us nowhere no works or laws will make us righteous before God. And if you guys missed Xavier's study this past Sunday out of the book of James, he talked about faith and works and works and faith, and, and it was a wonderful study. But if you really followed him and if you follow this these passages as well, works will always follow faith. That's part of the process. This is why we have to let go of our old ways because our works will not, not account to god for anything if that was possible if it was possible for works to do anything for us then i often wonder why only two pharisees are mentioned by name as being coming to christ in the whole bible who are they nicodemus and saul of tarsus they were both pharisees but they were the only two that are mentioned by name to have come to jesus christ their works didn't work and they knew it But think of all of the ones that didn't come, all of the ones that constantly questioned everything that Jesus did and said. They were lost. They were dead. They remained dead because their works were dead. Our passage also talks about faith as a gift from God that becomes activated as we accept God's grace for our salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this gift of saving faith in Romans 12:3 saying, "For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith." Paul mentions the gift of faith again in 1 Corinthians 12:9 as one of the gifts of the Spirit. And then Pastor Chuck Smith said in his commentary that this is the gift or manifestation of saving faith. He said that faith that believes the promises of God, that if we believe on Jesus Christ, we will be forgiven and cleansed of our sins. This is the faith that brings us to salvation. But this is not for us to brag about as if we saved ourselves. Our salvation is not the result of anything we are or know or do. There is no pride to claim and no action on our part to commend. Romans 3.28 says, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The grace of law saved us. Grace was the attribute of his character and his motivation in saving us. Through faith is the means of our salvation as we trust in and respond to the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. As we look at what God has done at this great gift, our reaction should be an attitude of gratitude. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus. In the face of this love grace and mercy we should practice a lifestyle of faith because we're told that we walk by faith not by sight our lifestyle should be a walk of faith and our hearts should rejoice for the Lord's salvation as David wrote in Psalm 21 saying that the king shall have joy in your strength O Lord and in your salvation how greatly shall he rejoice grace is the motive faith is the response Salvation is the result. And each and every one of these is a gift from God. That's the process of of becoming a new life in Christ. And then as we move forward in the passages, all of this comes together to glorify God through good works as we look at the purpose of receiving a new life in Christ in verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse speaks to the divine design behind God's salvation for us. We are his workmanship, or the Greek word is poema, which is where we get our word poem. And the New Living Translation translates this word as his masterpiece, a work of art, beautiful in our design. And because, of course, God don't like ugly and he don't make ugly, we're beautiful. He has created beauty out of our dead, sinful lives. This masterpiece is an exclusive work of God. We are the sole product, and that's S-O-U-L, product, of his craftsmanship. We are a work of God, and we have nothing to brag about in ourselves. The Lord makes beauty from the dead ashes of our lives, Isaiah 61.3 tells us. The work of art that the Lord regenerates from the graveyard becomes a thing of loveliness in Christ Jesus and I always admire people and Trudy and others who can go to you know the swap meet or an antique store and they can find this piece of furniture or or home decor and I I look at it and I figure "Mm, not so much but they can take it home, they can refurbish it, they can refinish it, they can spiff it up, and you see it again, and you say, wow, I didn't know it. that was in that piece. I couldn't see it. I don't know if you guys know Roberta's husband, Andre Moore, but he'll go to the junkyard and pluck these treasures out. Check out the Mercedes in the parking lot, y'all. They came from the junkyard. <laughs> But he can see it. He can pluck it out. He can refurbish it, repaint it, make it alive and new again and useful. It's a wonderful thing that God does in our lives. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are regenerated, remodeled, refurbished creations in Jesus Christ for the purpose of good works. Jesus said that the purpose of receiving a new life in Christ is to glorify God the Father. According to John 15:8, he tells us, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Our lives are to be totally surrendered to the Lord in order to produce good works that are useful, pleasurable, joyful, and honorable to God. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, knowing that God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. 2 Corinthians 9.8 and as for us women, God has given us some specific instructions in what a life of good works looks like for us. 1 Timothy 2, 9-10 says, Women should adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. First Timothy five, five through 10 encourages widows to continue in good works that include prayer, hospitality, ministry with a servant's heart and the care of the sick. And Titus two, three through five, admonishes its older women who are told to be reverent, truthful, sober, and to instruct the younger women to be godly wives and to build godly homes. And we can go on about the Proverbs 31 woman. And when we studied about women in the New Testament, we have examples in Anna and Lydia and Dorcas and Martha and Mary. These women put their faith into action and did good things that were pleasing to the Lord. They were his masterpieces that testified to his grace and salvation. We can only fulfill our purpose of receiving a new life in Christ by total dependency and service to God. This is precious, precious little ladies in return for all that God has done for us. Romans 12:1 through 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We grow in the knowledge of God's perfect will through the discipline of study of the word and prayer. This aligns us with God's will so that we can be as close as to the target as possible and live the life of good works he has for all of us. We know from 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul encouraged the church at Thessalonica to keep prayer, praise, and worship a priority as well. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Our good works were ordained by God before the beginning of time. He's eternal. He's created us for eternity. Therefore, he has prepared us and marked us out that our works ahead of time will come through, through eternity and and Karen spoke to this in Ephesians 1, 5 last week. So the purpose of receiving a new life in Christ is to glorify God as his masterpieces, to bear good fruit in every aspect of our lives, to exercise the discipline of study of the word and prayer in order to know his will This is how we put feet to our faith in fulfilling the purpose of receiving a new life in Christ. Next, we're going to look at uh, how we had no part in that new life and the price of acquiring a new life in Christ. It says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we have both access by one spirit to the Father. Paul reminds the churches of Ephesus that before they were saved, when they were Gentiles and without Christ, they had no part in the promises and blessings or hope that was afforded the Jews. Circumcision was a sign of pride for the Jewish nation. For Jews to call Gentiles uncircumcision was actually a religious slur. The Jews prided themselves on not being Gentiles and better than the pagan people that surrounded them. Paul's point, though, in this passage was not to flaunt his Jewish heritage, but to remind them that they previously had been disconnected from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the the world. And that's where they and we came from before we were saved, godless, hopeless, and without a future, alienated and separated from God. But then Paul changes the remainder from the past tense to the present tense and says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The means or the price of our current redeemed standing in God was Jesus dying on the cross and shedding his blood for the remission of our sins. Jesus paid the cost for you and me to be reconciled to God beneficiaries of the promise and hope that is in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9:13 through 15 attests to the saving grace of his blood. He says, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God as mediator Jesus Christ has given us peace with God he has torn down the wall of separation and this refers to in the passage the wall in the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the Jews Jesus by his death burial and resurrection gave us access to God he paid the price the only one who could pay the price for our peace with god romans 5 1 tells us that therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through through our lord christ jesus and because of the price he paid to acquire a new life in christ for us we now stand as one man made from two distinct and separate peoples with equal access and peace with god And this is what I, when I kept reading over this passage, I kept thinking, this is the true United Nations when you think about it. This is where Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled all into one single nation before God. No other diplomat or ambassador but Jesus could have brokered this kind of peace. No man would be willing or able to die and pay the perfect price demanded by God to redeem us. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. One God, one mediator, one price. Jesus paid it all, and we owe it all to him alone. Jesus only asks, as we examine and remember this price that was paid, that we remember that through communion. He told his disciples in Matthew 26:26 26, 26 through 28, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Communion is a beautiful thing to take part in, ladies. It's the reminder of the price that was paid for our new life in Christ. It didn't come cheap. It didn't cost him nothing. We should always be willing and available to acknowledge that through communion. And finally, we'll close with the privilege of having a new, Christ, new life in Christ in verses 19 through 22. He says, "Therefore, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but foreign citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. These closing verses summarize all the work God has done for us, to us, and through us. Building on these previous verses, Jew and Gentile have equal access to God the Father through Son, by the Spirit. We're all now under one roof in God's family, This isn't a blended family, it's not an extended family, and it most certainly is not a dysfunctional family. We are called fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There are no strangers, foreigners, or undocumented immigrants in this family. There is no longer the estrangement that once existed between Jews and Gentiles. We now all come together as a one family unit into God's presence without any separation or hindrance to his throne. And this is where all those clinker bricks that I told you about earlier, this is where they all come together, and they're all stacked up one upon the other. But the foundation, the cornerstone, is Jesus Christ. And then we rise up together into a beautiful and perfectly built holy temple to God. I I didn't have time or the resources to get to this, but what I wanted to do tonight for the visual for you guys was to have all these broken bricks, you know, on one side and have all these sins you know, taped and named onto those bricks. And then on the other side, show this beautiful shining church that now has been lifted up and raised up by God. The old man, the new man, made alive by Lord Jesus Christ in his blood. The privilege of having a new life in Christ is this common citizenship with God's chosen people. We now have the recognition and standing Israel once exclusively enjoyed. We're now joined as one family with the same family history, sharing one family tree of which Christ is the head. What a privilege we have in Jesus. That's an old hymn that I really love. And we're all equally privileged. There is no upper class, no middle class, and no lower class. We're all one. We have one Father, and he's the richest person in the universe. And we share in those riches equally and generously. And the ultimate privilege is we are a holy temple in the Lord for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That is just so cool that God lives in us, that he wants to live in that dead, resurrected corpse that he brought to life. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? We don't belong to ourselves, ladies. We don't own anything that we have in Christ. Any benefit, any promise, any covenant, anything that we have is all belonging to Jesus because he's the one who enabled it, he's the one who sustains it, and he's the one who paid for it. We have to remember that we bring nothing to the table. He made us and owns us, lock, stock, and barrel. I don't know about you, but I am so good with that. I am so good that I am owned by Jesus, that I am his and his alone. So we looked tonight at the process of becoming a new life in Christ. It begins with God, motivated by his great love, his grace, and his mercy to make us alive. We receive the gift of salvation and respond to it in faith, reacting with an attitude of gratitude and a practice and a lifestyle of faith in a heart of rejoicing for the Lord's salvation. And the purpose of receiving a new life in Christ is to glorify God as his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus, to bear good works in every aspect of our lives, and to know his will through the discipline of the study of the word and prayer. When we look at the price of requiring that new life, we know again we had absolutely nothing to do with it. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. We can remember the price that he paid through communion and honoring him. And lastly, we looked at the privilege of having a new life in Christ, which allows us to share a common citizenship and family with God's chosen people and the ultimate privilege of being a holy temple in the Lord for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God is so generous, ladies. He is so overly abundantly generous in his love and his grace. He has given us a new life what are we doing with it how are we using it it's not even ours to live it's his to live through us study the words stay in prayer stay close to god keep your account short rejoice in the things that he has done i don't know if you guys remember a couple of weeks ago uh, we had the group i am they here and um they were a great, great worship team. We had a real good time. But there was one song that I found on their CD, and I'm going to quickly just read a couple of verses for you because it really sums up who we are. And the name of the song is We Are Yours. And it says, You placed eternity in our hearts. We were yours from the very start. All we've known has been torn apart, and now we have forever. You gave a song for our souls to sing, and your life was the offering. Even death, it has lost its sting we have now we have forever and you can't take away what the world didn't give we were made for more we were made for more at the end of this day of the day this will remain forever we are yours forever we are yours you made a place at your table god paid the way for the poor and lost called us into your open arms and now we have forever No one, no one can take your place. No life, no death can separate. Your love, your love has conquered the grave, and you can't take away what the world didn't give. You were made for more. We were made for more. Ladies, we were made for much more. Are we giving God our all? Are we looking for opportunities to serve him, to know his will, and to exercise all of the gifts that he's given us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for your abundant love, grace, mercy. Father, we have no way of repaying you, no way at all. We are lost without you, but we are so much with you. We ask now, Father, that you just speak to our hearts, prompt us to serve you, to do works in your name, to glorify you, Father, to express our gratitude for the gifts that you have given us, Father, in salvation, for the new life that we had from resurrecting us from the dead, Father. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.